How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada, A Yearly Journey. Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to talk about dogs. Dogs have been an important part of Canadian history from the very beginning. The first dogs to arrive in Canada came from Siberia over 12,000 years ago. They were used for hunting, pulling sleds, and as companions for the indigenous people who made their way across the Bering Strait. In the 17th century, European settlers brought dogs with them as well. And like the indigenous people, they relied on their dogs for companionship, hunting, and protection. Dogs have been some of Canada's most beloved heroes. In 1909, a Labrador retriever named Polar Bear helped the explorer Robert Perry reach the North Pole. In 1916, Canadians were captivated by the story of Bruno, a sheepdog who was rescued from war-torn Europe and refused to eat after his person passed away. In 1941, a Newfoundland named Gander saved the lives of several Canadian soldiers during the Battle of Hong Kong. Over the centuries, dogs have served Canadians in an ever-expanding variety of ways. Today, they work in law enforcement, detect cancer and COVID, help find missing children, and enable the blind to get around. But for most Canadians, dogs are much more than just working animals. Their loyalty, friendship, and unconditional love have made them part of our families, Countless dogs are beloved characters in Canadian art and film. Their stories have been told by such noteworthy authors as Farley Mowat, Lucy Maud Montgomery, and Stephen Leacock. They can make us laugh, they comfort us, they remind us of our better angels, of what our character could be. And perhaps that is why we love them so much. Which brings me to my puppy, Boris. Boris is a 10-year-old... Irish Setter, Newfoundland Cross, the same breed as Gander, actually. Recently, he began hacking up his food. His bark became raspy, and he's having trouble breathing deeply. So I took him to see the vet. Boris has the canine version of Lou Gehrig's disease. His spinal cord will slowly degenerate, and over the next one to three years, he will progressively lose control of the muscles he uses to play, bark, eat, and breathe. There is no cure, and the cause remains unknown. But there is a way to slow it down. With the laryngeal paralysis, Boris needs surgery. Without it, his constricted larynx will get worse faster, and he may pass away in only a few months. The problem is the surgery costs $5,000, which is well beyond what I can afford. So I'm asking for your help. I've set up a GoFundMe to pay for the vet. If you'd like to contribute, just click the link for Boris Fundraiser in my show notes. And if you've donated already, thank you. If you've shared, thank you as well. Thank you for helping us get a few more precious years together, because it means the world to us both. And I want to say a very special thank you to Andrew. What I just read was written by him. He's a fantastic copywriter, and he was able to do this for me so that I could get the word out on my dog. So if you want to visit his website, go to sublimelime.ca, and that's two limes. That's sublimelime.ca. 
When we look back through the years to the year 1875, we see several amazing anniversaries taking place in Canada. As with so many years I've covered so far, 1875 has many noble events, births, and deaths. Let's begin. On January 14th, the Halifax Herald begins publishing. Officially founded the previous year, the newspaper operates to this day, although it's seen its circulation decline to 91,490, a drop of 15% between 2009 and 2015. On January 14th, the Ontario election occurs. Over the previous four years, Edward Blake had left provincial politics and moved on to the federal level. Replacing him in 1872 was Oliver Mowat, who would have an impact on Ontario for the rest of the century. Mowat had previously been a judge, and many wondered about a judge resigning to lead a party. As it turned out, very well, as Mowat would become the longest-serving premier in the history of the province by a margin of 10 years. The Conservatives were led by Matthew Crooks Cameron, who had been serving in the Legislative Assembly since 1865. He had been opposed to Confederation, instead wanting a legislative union. He would run in the federal election that same year, but was not elected, and he would serve in the cabinet of Premier Macdonald after the first election in Ontario, and after Macdonald died, Cameron became the new leader of the party. As usual, there were issues with the election and campaign. One man impersonated another voter and was released without charges. The Montreal Star reported, quote, The man who attempted to impersonate a voter at the late election was given leg bail and is now probably enjoying the proceeds of attempted fraud and having a laugh at the so-called strict election law, end quote. A reward of $50 was put forward for the arrest and conviction of anyone who took part in bribery or intimidation during the election. Various newspapers would also endorse Mowat, including in Brantford. The newspaper stated, quote, The record of four years of reform government is before the country, and upon the record of Mr. Mowat and his colleagues, have come back to the people to ask for an endorsement of their conduct and policy, a renewal of confidence in the administration, end quote. In Mowat's first election on January 18, 1875, he would lead the Liberals to a majority government, finishing with 50 seats, an increase of seven. Cameron would see his party lose four seats, finishing with 34. The Brantford newspaper would write, quote, Mr. Mowat and his colleagues have received at the hands of the people a following which will enable them to carry on the work of the country with success and not be hampered by a close majority in the business of legislation, end quote. With his election win, Mowat would spend the next 24 years as Premier of Ontario, becoming one of the most influential premiers in Canadian history. He was also involved in the Great Coalition Government of 1864, which would lead to the formation of Canada, making him a father of Confederation as well. At the time, Mowat was aided by the fact that the previous government had created a financial surplus, which Mowat would be able to use. His government quickly got to work promoting railroad construction, investing in land drainage, and building colonization roads to the frontier of the province to encourage settlement. By February 1875, Sir Johnny Macdonald had decided to take a loose rein on the party, and he fell hard into drinking a bit too much after his election loss the previous year. In February, while his wife Agnes was visiting Niagara, he had been drinking brandy and by 3 p.m. was drunk. He was rushed to the House of Commons to give a scheduled speech and spoke with enough clarity, but during the speech of Prime Minister Alexander Mackenzie, Macdonald interrupted him constantly. His party tried to get him out of the House of Commons, but he refused to leave, and his temper would get the best of him, as often happened when he drank. Agnes, who was able to keep him under control, was called back, and Macdonald decided to turn over a new leaf, at least for a time. On March 2nd, he would officially join the Church of England. 
On April 5th, the Supreme Court of Canada was established, providing a vital judicial branch to the government. The creation of a Central Court of Appeal was part of the campaign platform of the Liberals and Alexander Mackenzie in the previous election. It would be mentioned again in the throne speech after the election. The Supreme Court bill would be introduced to Parliament in February 1875 and passed with the support of both parties. It would not be the court of last resort for Canada, though, until 1949. Prior to that, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in England was the highest court. For the first time, on April 8th, the Northwest Territories were given a lieutenant governor that was separate from that of Manitoba. Alexander Morris would take on the role, serving in that position until 1876. Philip Ketteret Hill replaced William Anad as Premier of Nova Scotia on May 11th. He had served as the Provincial Secretary during that time, and with feelings against Confederation still strong in the province, Hill was able to succeed Anad as Premier. He would only serve for three years until 1878. On June 1st, one of the most important events in the early history of Canada occurred. The construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway, which would connect the country, began. I covered the entire construction of this railroad on my podcast, Coast to Coast, so check it out. But needless to say, it would be a long process before this railroad was finished, and even though it started in 1875, it would be another five to six years before things really got going. On June 12th, Sam DeGrasse was born in New Brunswick. While trained as a dentist, he would turn to acting in 1912 and appeared in several movies over the course of the next two decades. Some of the notable movies included The Birth of a Nation, King of Kings, Robin Hood, and The Man Who Laughs. He would pass away at the age of 78 in 1953. On June 15th, Herman Smith Johansson was born in Norway and would go on to become a notable pioneer in the sport of skiing through the building of ski jumps and trails in Ontario. In 1972, he would be appointed as a member of the Order of Canada for helping to push skiing as a recreational sport for people to enjoy in Canada. And he would die at the ripe old age of 111 on January 5, 1987. So for context, the guy born in 1875 died when I was 7 years old. For a brief time, 22 days, he was the oldest man on the planet. Far away from Sarajevo, far from the crowds and the glamour and the cheers and the banners, smoke rises from a little cottage buried in the Canadian snow. Inside, an old man stokes his fire and speaks of simple pleasures. He is Jackrabbit Johansson, a man who started skiing long before anyone but he can remember. For today's athletes, skiing is a way of life. For Jackrabbit, skiing is life itself. I'm happy when I can put on my skis. Today, I have to be satisfied going on a level. A hundred years ago, I was a good skier. Today, I'm no good except on the level. But my spirit is still there. I like to feel that I have a pair of skis on my feet. Jackrabbit Johansson is 108 years old. Ulysses S. Grant was president when he was born. That makes him older than the telephone or the radio. Older than just about everything we take for granted. Skiing today is commercialized. It's becoming artificial. Today, they won't ski unless they have a track made for them. If you are equipping yourself for the downhill and slalom, you get an equipment that you can't possibly use outside. You can't 
You can't even walk on the ski in the boots that they give you. All you can do is to be hauled up the hill and go down. One thing I learned in Canada was rise before dawn, free your cares, seek adventures, let noon find you by some other lake, and night overtake you anywhere at home. And I've learned something from an Indian girl at one time. A poem. There's a land beyond the ridges where the evening shadows fall. There's a lake where trout are rising beneath the mountain wall. There I'll pitch my tent at twilight. My campfire smoke shall rise while of bough on boughs of fragrant balsam sleep shall rest my weary eyes. That's the way to live. On June 22nd, Sir William Edmund Logan would pass away in Wales. Born in 1798 in Montreal, he would go on to found and become the first director of the Geological Survey of Canada, a post he would hold from 1842 to 1869. He would also establish the Geological Museum in 1856, which would become the forerunner of both the Canadian Museum of Nature and the Canadian Museum of History. In 1869, he published a 983-page book called The Geology of Canada that would gain critical acclaim. On June 30th, the Land Purchase Act came into effect in Prince Edward Island. This act was meant to settle the land question that had come up as PEI Joint Confederation. At the time, much of the land in the new province was owned by absentee landlords, usually in Great Britain. The new act would force landlords to sell the estates to the provincial government, who would then sell the land at a lower price to farmers on the island. This legislation was one of the most important in the history of the province. The first Chief Justice of Canada, William Buell Richards, would state, quote, that it was viewed as not an ordinary legislation, but as the settling of an important question of a great moment to the community, and in the principle like the abolition of the seniorial tenure in Lower Canada and the settling of the land question in Ireland. The great object of the statute seems to be to convert the leasehold tenures into freehold estates, a matter of great importance and one which, if not settled, would be likely to affect the peace as well as the prosperity of the province. End quote. To this day, many principles of this act are still in place in PEI. Non-residents are not allowed to purchase land of more than 4.9 acres without approval from the legislature or cabinet. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. One year after the Northwest Mounted Police arrived in the Canadian West, Fort Walsh was built in the Cypress Hills near where the Cypress Hills Massacre occurred in 1873. 
It was named for its builder, Inspector James Morrow Walsh, and the purpose of the fort was to stop the illegal whiskey trade and protect the border from the Americans, who were often moving into the area to hunt and trade. The fort would serve as an important place for the next decade, with traders, settlers, and indigenous people often visiting it. Fort Walsh would actually serve as the headquarters for the Northwest Mounted Police from 1878 to 1882, but in 1883 was officially closed and dismantled. The original site of the fort was made a National Historic Site of Canada in 1924, and in the 1940s the entire fort was reconstructed and used to breed horses for the RCMP musical ride. Today, the fort still stands and the buildings, town site, and cemeteries can all be toured. On September 28, 2004, the fort was made part of the Cypress Hills Dark Sky Preserve. I visited the fort, and it's a really cool place to check out, so if you're ever in southwest Saskatchewan, go check it out. On July 20th, the British Columbia election was held with the issues of the unbuilt railway and Chinese immigration being the biggest topics. At the time, there were still no official parties, and the titles of government and opposition and independent were used instead of parties. A total of 25 members were elected from 12 ridings, with some ridings having multiple candidates going to the government. Also in 1875, in July, Fort Calgary was established by the Northwest Mounted Police. The fort was built at the junction of the Bow and Elbow Rivers and was completed in December of the same year. In all, it cost $2,476 to build, paid for by the federal government. Originally, it was called Fort Brisbois, after the commander of F Troop of the Northwest Mounted Police. However, it was felt by his superiors that he had overstepped himself by naming the fort after himself, and the fort name was then changed to Fort Calgary in honour of Calgary House in Scotland by James MacLeod. Things, unfortunately, did not begin well for the fort. During the winter of 1875 and into 1876, F Troop mutinied due to the poor leadership of Brisbois, and a delegation was sent to Fort MacLeod to air their complaints. Brisbois was relieved of duty and replaced with Lawrence Hirschmer. Of course, Fort Calgary would grow and eventually become Calgary, the largest city in Alberta and one of the most important cities in Canada, and also the place where I was born. One can associate the residential school system with tuberculosis and tuberculosis with the residential school system. We had indigenous parents, communities, students, church employees, teachers, and individuals who are part of Indian Affairs like Dr. Peter Henderson Price giving their critiques in their own time. People hid when the tuberculosis screening came to their communities because they knew that the result of getting screened was that they, they could be taken away. I believe a lot of people were used, government officials who just thought they were doing the right thing. They were doing what they were told. First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples are already told our story. It's now time to tell the other side of the story. We need to take a serious look at the parts of the system from the past that we may be replicating today. I'm Maya Foster Sanchez, and this is the story of a national crime. Coming this fall, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Born on August 2, 1875, Albert Hickman was a prominent businessman in Newfoundland who would serve as the Prime Minister of Newfoundland for a total of 33 days, from May 10, 1924 to June 9, 1924, in a caretaker position after the collapse of the government. Hickman was asked by the governor to form a government, and Hickman invited members of the Liberal Reform Party and members of other parties into his government in what he called the Liberal Progressive Party. 
His new party would lose the 1924 election since supporters of Warren had created their own party, the Liberal Conservative Progressive Party. Hickman would serve as leader of the opposition until 1928 when he retired from politics and he would pass away on February 9, 1943. On August 21st, George Coles would pass away in Prince Edward Island at the age of 64. He was the first Premier of Prince Edward Island and a father of Canadian Confederation. He served as the colony's first Premier prior to adjoining Canada as well from 1851 to 1854, then from 1855 to 1859, and followed by 1867 to 1869. On August 26th, John Buchan, the first Baron of Tweedsmere and future Governor-General of Canada, was born in Scotland. In 1910, Buchan wrote Prester John, the first of his adventure novels. Set in South Africa, became a hit, but Buchan was unable to enjoy the success as he was dealing with terrible ulcers at the time. In 1954, he published his most famous book, The 39 Steps, which was a spy thriller set just before the outbreak of the war. With this book, many credit Buchan with being a creator of the espionage novel genre. His novels often had the spy chase at the center of the narrative, but due to other authors like Eric Ambler, Graham Greene, and Ian Fleming, his contributions to the genre have been overlooked. The success of the book would lead to four more books in the series, all following the hero, Richard Haney. In 1911, he would run for Parliament and was progressive for his time, supporting women's suffrage, national insurance, limiting the powers of the House of Lords, and opposing the class hatred he saw being fostered by liberal politicians. When the First World War broke out, Buchan began to write for the British War Propaganda Bureau while also working as a correspondent for the London Times. He got the position after he was declared medically unfit for active service and was confined to a bed for the first months of the war. He was made the first Baron Tweedsmere by King George V on June 1, 1935. He was selected for the title due to his association with the village of the same name at the head of the River Tweed. As well, Lord Buchan was already taken at the time. The reason he was elevated to peerage was because he was going to be the new Governor-General of Canada on the recommendation of Prime Minister R.B. Bennett. Opposition leader William Lyne Mackenzie King recommended that Buchan serve as Viceroy as a commoner, but the King would not allow this. William Lyne Mackenzie King would write in his diary about the appointment of Buchan as Governor-General that he was inwardly delighted over the appointment. He would say, quote, I gave word to the press that I was greatly pleased and that I regarded the appointment as an excellent one. End quote. I'm very glad to have got started at last and to be going to a land which I know and love. I am greatly looking forward, and so is my wife, both to the voyage and to our journey's end. I am very sure that Canada, which I already know to some extent, will become far dearer to me on a closer acquaintance. On November 4, 1935, Buchan was sworn in as the new Governor-General of Canada. When Buchan arrived in Canada, he found R.B. Bennett was now out as Prime Minister, and King was now back on the top post. At his ceremony, Buchan would say, quote, You have welcomed not only His Majesty's representative, but my wife and myself, in words so kind that I find it hard to make an adequate reply. We are looking forward to five years of duties and also of happiness. For we have come to a land which we already know and love, a land in which we have many friends, among whom Mr. Prime Minister, one of the oldest and most valued, is yourself. End quote. By 1939, Buchan had traveled about 112,000 kilometers around the country. During one trip in 1937, he would fly all the way to the edge of the Arctic Ocean, 
a six-hour flight from Fort Smith that was part of a longer 7,000-kilometer expedition by land, sea, and air that began at Edmonton. As Governor-General, Buchan encouraged a national identity for Canada, which angered some imperialists. In Montreal in 1937, he said, quote, A Canadian's first loyalty is not to the British Commonwealth of Nations, but to Canada and Canada's king, end quote. The Montreal Gazette would call him disloyal over the comments. In August 1939, with his time as Governor-General coming to an end, Buchan was popular enough that Prime Minister King began looking at extending Buchan's time in Canada. At that point, no Governor-General had served for more than seven years, which was what Earl Grace served from 1904 to 1911. At the time, many knew that Buchan's health was not perfect, but that did not seem to bother King. Unfortunately, less than a year later, Buchan's time as Governor-General would come to an end for a tragic reason. In the morning of February 6, 1940, while in his bathroom, Buchan hit his head, suffering a severe head injury. On February 11, 1940, Buchan, the Governor-General of Canada, was dead. Upon his death at 7.13pm until 10.30pm when the Chief Justice was sworn in as the Acting Governor-General, Canada was without any representative of the British Crown. King would write in his diary, quote, So far as within Canada was concerned, I was practically alone in the government of our country at least for those hours, end quote. King would announce to the country the news over the radio, stating, quote, In the passing of His Excellency, the people of Canada have lost one of the greatest and most revered of their governors-general, and a friend who, from the day of his arrival in this country, dedicated his life to their service, end quote. Canada bade farewell to her late, well-beloved Governor-General, mourning for a King's representative who had earned general esteem. The body of the first Governor-General to die in office was placed in the Parliament buildings for the ceremonial lying in state. Thousands waited in the bitter cold to pay homage to his memory. He had risen to one of the highest positions within the Empire. John Buchan, the writer whose early days in Scotland were memories revived in the Scottish Presbyterian Church in Ottawa. Among the many mourners was Alistair Buchan, Lord Tweesmuir's youngest son. I did an entire episode on John Buchan and every other Governor's General in the Canadian history on my other podcast, From John to Justin, so be sure to check it out. On December 5th, Arthur Curry was born in Napperton, Ontario. Enlisting with the Canadian Army, he would rise to the rank of senior officer during the First World War. Starting as a simple pre-war militia gunner in 1897, he rose to become the first Canadian commander of the Canadian Corps. He is today considered to be one of the most capable commanders of the Western Front during the war and one of the finest commanders in Canadian history. He would eventually reach the rank of general and be knighted prior to his death in Montreal in 1933. On December 14th, Marianne Gavary would pass away at the age of 95. Born in Quebec in 1780, Gavary would marry and travel west with her new husband to the area that would one day be Winnipeg. She continued to travel with her husband through the years, reaching nearly to the modern-day Edmonton. She would become the first woman of European descent to travel and settle in Western Canada. And she would also be the grandmother of Louis Rial, and would live long enough to see her grandson help to create a province in the area she called home for so many years. Interestingly, since his grandmother died that same year, also during 1875, Louis Riel was granted amnesty on the condition that he stay banished from Canada for a period of five years. Also this year, Jennifer Trout would become the first woman licensed to practice medicine in Canada. 
Emily Stowe had been the first woman to practice medicine in Canada since 1867, but she did so without an official license. Grace Lockhart would earn a Bachelor of Arts degree this year, the first ever awarded to a woman from Mount Allison University. While she would be the first to earn a degree, she would spend most of her life as the wife of a Methodist minister, but her academic achievement would help push more women into higher education. The Hospital for Sick Children was founded this year. Located in Toronto, the current Peter Gilgan Centre for Research and Learning is believed to be the largest pediatric research tower in the world. The hospital had been founded based on the example of the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. At the time of its opening, the hospital was an 11-room house that was rented for $320 a year by a women's Bible study group led by Elizabeth McMaster. Six iron cots were set up, and it was declared open as a hospital for the admission and treatment of all sick children. The first child to attend the hospital was named Maggie, who came in on April 3, 1875 due to a scalding. Within its first year, the hospital helped 44 children. In 1876, the hospital would move to a larger location. Work on the signing of Treaty 5 also began in 1875. The treaty would be signed over time from 1875 to 1876 between the federal government and the Ojibwe and Swampy Cree people. The treaty land covers most of central and northern Manitoba with some portions of Saskatchewan and Ontario. Lieutenant Governor Morris and James McKay, an Executive Council of Manitoba member, began to negotiate with bands. They offered a one-time payment of $5 upon signing the treaty, less than half what the Indigenous people were receiving elsewhere for Treaty 3 and Treaty 4. The Ojibwe and Cree would only receive 160 acres of land per family, one quarter of what previous treaties provided. In the first Treaty 5 trip, Morris and McKay met with the Indigenous on September 20th and secured acceptance of the treaty terms with little debate. The next day, McKay and Morris went to Norway House and on September 24th met with two groups of Cree. The treaty was then signed with them. McKay and Morris then went to Grand Rapids on the Saskatchewan River and met with more Indigenous peoples on September 27th. The indigenous people there asked for $500 to cover the cost of moving and rebuilding on a reserve. This request was approved. During negotiations and signings during the year, 258,000 square kilometers of land was ceded to the government, which included the land west of Cumberland House and included the country east and west of Lake Winnipeg and the Nelson River. This year, construction on the Meriton Tunnel under the Welland Canal would begin, conducted by the Grand Trunk Railway. Construction would be completed in 1876, but it would officially open four years later. The tunnel ran for 713 feet and was made by men using only picks and shovels, with horses taking the dirt out in wagons. The construction of the tunnel was very dangerous. In 1875, a 14-year-old boy was killed when he was crushed by a large rock while working. In all, 107 men died in the construction of the tunnel and the canal in that area. The tunnel would be used until 1915 when it was closed, and it would eventually be sealed completely. I hope you enjoyed that episode on my look at 1875. Next week, we're of course looking at 1876. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to Canada ehx.com and clicking donate and i also want to thank all of my wonderful patrons and i apologize if i get any names incorrect martin strache sarah white tom mcmillan mike sullivan wendy mills keelan pringnitz 
Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard T., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nixon Ree, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from McLean's Canadian Encyclopedia, Ottawa Citizen, Montreal Gazette, the Winnipeg Free Press, Wikipedia, and the Montreal Star. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.